It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. Hi, I'm Teresa. And I'm Amy. We are two ordinary moms looking for inspiration wherever we can find it. So, Teresa, I have to ask, what was your highlight from last week? I love, 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 love the bookmarks you make. Oh, well, I can't take credit. Cedar House <laughs> Publishing. They helped me. So, I have been adding those with my caramel corn that I've been oh, doing my co workers. And yeah, so anyway, I love it. Love the bookmarks. And then, speaking of work, my middle guy, who is the band yeah. kiddo, he came and did a concert <gasps> at our. Oh, nice. At the Springs. And so I asked him, what was the best part? What was the worst part? The worst part was traffic. I get it. The best part, he was super excited that one of the ladies had asked him to play Silent Night a second time to finish off with a Silent Night so they could all sing together. Oh, cute. So not only did that happen and my heart was just... Oh, my gosh. Melting. I know, exactly. But that was his favorite part. I was... I... Yeah. It was just all As sorts of As a mama, I can see I know it would be. And then us going to that movie. We went oh, and celebrated, yeah. um, went and saw Lady Gaga's uh, <laughs> House, of, <laughs> House of Gucci. The way yes. she did that. Yeah. She was amazing in that. So, um, yeah. It was, it was a fun, fun-filled week, for sure. You never know what's going to change the direction of your life. We've seen that over and over again. Oh, for sure. It could be something small, like reading a book as a child that makes you consider following in the footsteps of your favorite character in your yeah. career. It could be something major, like moving across the country and finding yourself in a totally new environment with options you never considered. It could be asking a friend about lifeguarding. So back in the day, um, in PE class, I was running around with Craig, my husband. We were just running and doing laps in PE. And I asked him about lifeguarding because I had gotten a job at the same pool. And anyway, 30 years later, we are together. So (laughs) So I didn't know that you guys knew each other in high school. We knew each other in high school, but we were dating different people. So we we just just were running laps. And I was yeah. asking about lifeguarding and because I knew he worked at the pool and I was, I got a job there. So you just never know how things are going to end up and how something that may seem like a trivial, first, yeah, or yeah, trivial unveils your passion. Wow. So I, this, this young lady I had never heard of before. So I bet you, you haven't heard of, but my girlfriend, Stacey Camus suggested her, she works at Nike and she said, you have got to check out. Veronica Hippolito, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. Her parents were history teachers and they were living in Brazil. They encouraged her to do sports. Oh. Not because they were athletes, but because they thought that it would be a good way for her to socialize and make friends, which I totally get. Yeah. I think sports is good for that. Perfect for them. Right. Veronica tried Taekwondo, karate, gymnastics, swimming, polo, table tennis, field tennis, (laughs) soccer, futsal. And volleyball, and as Veronica would describe it, in almost all of them, I was horrible, but in the end, I was having fun, and that's what matters to me, so I love that. Veronica finally found success in judo at the age of 11. Wow. She started doing tournaments and winning, and she was finally, she finally felt like she found her sport. When she was 12, 
they found a brain tumor. And she'd have two surgeries, one at the age of 12 and one at the age of 13 to remove the tumor. After the second surgery, she asked the doctors how long it would be before she could return to doing her judo tournaments. Well, she didn't get the answer she wanted. Due to the surgeries, she was unable to return to judo or any contact sport, which I absolutely get, but including any sports that might include her getting hit with a ball. Sure, right. Veronica was devastated. As she found herself in judo, she loved the sport. She spent a long time during recovery from her surgery depressed, which I totally get. And, you know, she was upset that she could no longer excel in judo. But sometimes life has different plans for us. Right. As we've seen time Yeah, I'm time excited. I think something good's going to happen. <laughs> this is episode 61, so yeah. we've seen like 61 yeah. cases where this, at least where this has happened. So one day, Veronica's father informed her that he had signed Veronica up for track and field festival. Oh. Veronica, who liked to sleep in, and obviously those are early, she gave her dad a firm no thank you, but her dad got her up anyway and dragged her to the track, figuring That's she cute. would make the... It's adorable. Figuring she'd make the best of it, Veronica participated in a few of the running events, and she found out she loved it. She got beat in all of her races, but she had found a new passion. As they drove away from the track, Veronica told her parents that she was going to be the fast girl in town. I love that mentality. Yeah, that confidence and just the the drive to work to be the fast girl in town. She started running and improving. However, it was short-lived. At the age of 13, Veronica had a stroke, which paralyzed the left side of her body. She lost the ability to speak and could no longer walk. People began telling her that she'd likely not walk again, let alone run. Now, mind you, she's 13. I I just, I mean, putting myself in her position, I can't, I can't even imagine. Many people around her thought she'd never improve. Her parents, however... Never bought into that. And they wouldn't let her daughter do it either. Which I love that mentality. She said, my mom always said that I shouldn't be mediocre. That I had to give my best, even if it was painful sometimes. My father always said, especially when I left the hospital, that everyone was going to try to limit me. That I was going to decide what was possible for me. It's my life, my actions. And that's what I decided. That I really was going to be the fastest girl in town. I just, I love that. I do too. That she would be the one setting her own limits. Yeah. Not anyone else. Veronica started pushing herself in rehab, eventually regaining the ability to walk. Then she pushed a little harder and picked up her pace, then a jog, and finally she was running again. Oh, that's awesome. I know. I, this will make me teary. Track was her physical therapy, which I totally get. She started running races, and she didn't always win, but continued to get faster. She was competing against able-bodied runners and holding her own, but her paralysis kept her from competing against the best able-bodied runners. However, in 2013, she found out that she qualified to participate in the Paralympics and ended up representing Brazil in the World Para-Athletics Championship in Lyon, France. There, this 17-year-old rookie won a gold medal in the 200-meter and silver in the 100-meter dash. Oh, that's awesome. I know. From there, Veronica Hippolyta became one of the fastest para-athletes in the world. In 2014, 
Para South American Games in Santiago, Chile, Veronica took gold in the 100 and 200 long jump. Oh. In 2015, Parapan American Games held in Toronto, Canada. She won three gold medals in the 100, 200, and 400 meter races and a silver in the long jump. Just days before this competition, she found out that she had over 200 tumors in her large intestine. Oh, no. Most of which had to be removed after the competition. 2016 was a harder year for Veronica. In the Paralympic Games in her hometown of Brazil, Veronica took a silver in the 100 meter and the bronze in the 400 meter. In 2017 and again in 2018, Veronica needed two brain surgeries. This girl has been through so much. But it kept her from competing, obviously, with brain surgeries. In 2019, she found that she was able to return to competition in the Parapan American Games, where she silvered in the long jump, 100 meter, 400 meter, and the 4 by 100 meter relay. It's just an amazing story to me. Veronica Hippolito has overcome so much at such a young age. Her life has definitely not been easy. And would have been, I mean, I, I don't, I wouldn't blame her for giving up. Right. But she, she never a good did. spirit. Yeah. Serious spirit. It's such an impressive display of strength and perseverance. It wasn't where she thought she'd end up, but it definitely has been an amazing journey. I can't wait to see where she goes. When Veronica first started running tracks, she found she needed some track spikes. <laughs> she couldn't afford them. She couldn't afford new ones, I should say, but she bought a pair from a girl that was graduating. It was a pair of Nikes. These shoes had been worn by three other owners, but she was ecstatic. She was happy to have those. Sure. Now, fast forward, that same girl that had the hand-me-down Nikes is being sponsored by Nike, and my girlfriend was like, she learned English to speak to her team at Nike. So it's just amazing. You just never know where life's going to take you. And yeah, love it. Love it. Love it. You gave me, as always, Julia, the letters of Julia Child and Avis Devoto. From my library. (laughs) From your library. From your garage, (laughs) all those books. So, after that, I knew I wanted to research her for our podcast. I'm so excited you did because Which, I wanted to learn about Julie yeah. Child, but that book was so big. Yeah, well, so yeah, and yeah. and I love that finding out about all these amazing people. You know, of course, I'd seen Julia Child on TV, little snippets of her show growing up. Her voice is what's so unique, mm-hmm. that high pitch, kind of with a with a bit of a trill, and she always ending her show with that joyous bon appetit. So, which means enjoy your meal in French. Mm. But other than I that, none of that. other than that, I didn't know anything about her. So no, neither do I. That's why I'm yeah. so excited about this. Yeah. So Julia Carolyn McWilliams hmm. was born August fifteenth, nineteen twelve, in Pasadena, California. She was born to an affluent family. Her dad was in the banking business. She had a younger brother and sister. And I, I love reading this. She was really a pretty mischievous kid. She enjoyed pranks. She's a bit of a daredevil, and she was super sporty. I mean, she swam, she played basketball. So she was the oldest child. She was the oldest, yeah. After high school, Julia went to her mother's alma mater, Smith College in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. which 
you know. Although Julia is very bright, she was not into school. She got all C's. She even worried about failing college. After college, she moved back to Pasadena for, for a while. She kind of flitted around a bit. You know, she tried secretary school, which is kind of what some women did back then, mm-hmm. back east. That lasted a month. And then she worked for W... Let's not say some women. But... Yeah, women didn't have careers. No, they didn't. So it's not as secretaries. That was your career. That was a career. career. She worked for W and J Sloan Furniture Company, New York. She helped with like setting up photo shoots and odd jobs. But after the bombing of Pearl Harbor in 1941, the U.S. went to war, and Julia wanted to do something to help, like my dad, who we talked about Mm -hmm. in episode, you know, 54. So in 1942, she moved to Washington, D.C. She applied for both the Navy and Army. Unfortunately, due to her height, she's 6'3". Oh, my gosh. I had no idea. It's so funny because I think her sister's 6'5". I don't remember what her brother was, but her mom even says, I had more children that were over 18 feet. So it's kind of interesting. They're tall people. So she was too tall. But she heard to about say the least. I know we're oh we're, my gosh, we're, we're short. <laughs> we're short, so we'd be denied because be li- we're too short. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But she heard about the OSS, the Office of Strategic oh, yes, yes, Services, yes. forerunner of the um, CIA, and she ended up working for the man in charge. Oh, that was the forerunner of yeah. the CIA. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, so she worked for uh, General Donovan. She read and organized like top secret, detailed information. Kind of a fun fact: Julie was asked about. The shark, uh, sharks, excuse me, setting off underwater explosives. So she suggested this uh, repelling concoction. <laughs> it was like her first foray in cooking. And it's still used today, whatever that concoction so, is, to help with the, the, the sharks are setting off the explosives. So some sort, something to repel them so they wouldn't go near it. But funny. anyways, the OSS sent her overseas to Sri Lanka where she met her husband, Paul Child. They were unlikely couple. I mean, he's 10 years her senior. Mm-hmm. But Paul introduced her to art, to food, which is like a huge revelation to Julia. She kind of lived in a bubble. So... They enjoyed, which is interesting. It's interesting. Yeah. She was affluent, like came from an affluent family, right? But so she kind of went to school and lived, you know, kind of a sheltered life. Mm-hmm. And now she's overseas, and an older man knows art and food. Mm-hmm. They enjoyed the adventure, exploring ancient temples, watching the elephants, eating mm-hmm. the local fare. Mm-hmm. They eventually fell in love and married September first, nineteen forty six. After living in D.C. for a few years, Paul got a position in Paris, France, where there was a new department called the United States Information Services. This was to improve relations through American art and culture uh, in Europe. So Paul was asked to organize these art art exhibitions. And it was really, this experience was a pivotal moment for Julia. After arriving in France, they're off the ship, they're driving through the countryside on the way to Paris, Paul had lived there before, so they stopped at one of his favorite restaurants. I'm probably going to mispronounce it, La Caron. I wonder if it's still around. Well, I don't. I think it is. Okay. He he knew Julia would love it. He spoke French and ordered first oysters, and Ooh. then the main dish, the sole menire. The fish was cooked simply in butter, lots of butter, sprinkled with parsley, and then squeezed lemon. And then after putting it down, the waiter said, uh, bon appetit. And, and Julia was like, this was the most exciting meal of my life. So, so much so, she, she ordered this for days, like afterwards. That's it, hilarious. One thing I thought, it was super interesting to read that 
that the French have special regions that produce flavored butters, kind of like wine. I mean, I did not know this, but I I have to say it's pretty interesting. A full-body butter from um, Beurre (laughs) to Charentes was usually recommended for, like, pastry dough and general cooking. And then uh, Beurre to Designy, I'm probably going to pronounce it, but that's like a table butter. I just thought that was interesting. But anyways, uh, Julia truly just fell in love with French food and the culture. I mean, the longer she and Paul stayed, the more she just became immersed in this lifestyle. And it's funny, she didn't really care about the fancy parts of Paris. She just really cared more about the the way of life and the food. Mm -hmm. Um, She made friends quickly. She was taking a hat-making class. Uh, Hat-making class? I know. I guess it was something to do. I mean... Like felt hats? uh, Yeah, I don't really know. I'm so curious about that. Then uh, someone suggested she take a cooking class at uh, Le Cordon Bleu, which is um, the oldest cooking school in France, which was started by a French journalist, Martha Destel, who wanted regular people the opportunity to take cooking classes with a professional chef. Most schools in France only allowed men. So Le Cordon Bleu allowed uh, women to have a chance to uh, learn from professionals, So, which is great. So I know. So Julia started off in a beginner class, and she was bored and decided she needed more of a challenge. Yeah. And I guess she presented it in such a way that the only option was for her to move into the professional cook class, <laughs> which is all men, which I love I that. I love this already. I mean, that didn't stop Julia. I mean... She was uh, dedicated to her cooking. After class, she would go to the local market and buy the ingredients and practice at home. She took really detailed notes to kind of keep track of her successes and meals that didn't turn out well uh, in order not to repeat mistakes. And then at a party, she met uh, Simone Beck Fischbacher. Uh, a friend called her uh, Simka. And Simka told her about a club for women who cook French food, which, of course, Julie was totally into. And these two women had so much in common. They both had taken classes at Le Cordon Bleu, and they both love French food. And um, shortly after that, Simca had a friend, Louisetta Berthol. I'm sorry, I'm butchering all this French, but (laughs) they decided the three these these three women wanted to start a cooking school, and they called it L'École. Des Trois Gourmands, which is the school of the three hearty eaters, which I think is so fun. They taught American women there in France who wanted, you know, wanted to learn how to um, cook French food. And they only charged $5 for the lesson and lunch. That's a pretty good deal. Now, what what time frame was this? So this would be, I think it's like 1948-ish, maybe, I'm thinking. Yeah, after the war, they've been, yeah. So shortly after opening the school, Julie wrote to her pen pal, the one, the book um, that you gave me uh, to Avis Devato, and said, I finally found a real and satisfying profession which will keep me busy well into the year 2000, which I, I find is so remarkable because it's like she wrote this. I, okay, it's 1952 she wrote that. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. So what passion. is passion? Talk the about passion. passion. Yeah. So Avis Devoto was an American culinary editor, just to give a history about her, a book reviewer, a cook. And uh, Julia and her corresponded while she was in France, which which led to that book that you gave me, as always. Uh, Julia, the letters between the two of them, which is it's actually it's really a fun kind of book to read. But not too long after opening the school. Of the, of the three hard to eat. Yeah, it's pretty cute. 
they want they started working on a French cookbook and they wanted to publish a cookbook for American housewives which I think is really cool but one of the main obstacles these cooks met with was the French and American measurements were quite different like a yeah. cup of flour is measured in grams yeah. in, in France confusing. not in ounces like in America and the other thing is French recipes kind of call for this like a pinch of salt. And Julia really wanted the recipes to be easy to follow and exact. Mm-hmm. She wanted to offer a fuller explanation of each recipe in order for the dish to be successful and replicable. Um, soon the ladies began to argue, though, over the recipes, leaving it to uh, Julia and Simka to finish the cookbook. Uh, it's amazing to me that Julia wrote many versions of the cookbook. She truly approached the recipes like in a scientific manner, repeating them over and over again. She even wrote the recipes in triplicate, sending copies to friends in America for them to try out. So it took her 12 years oh to perfect gosh. 524 recipes, 726-page book. Okay, this is not a small cookbook. I mean, that's a bit daunting. Yeah. I mean, they didn't have not a any bit daunting. They didn't that's... have anything like that back then. Yeah, so, however, she Julia truly believed Americans were ready to learn, you know, a higher quality of cooking. Her instructions were described by some that it was like she was there with you holding your hand while you're cooking, which I just I love that description. So finally, in the fall of 1961, Mastering the Art of French Cooking was published. Julia is now almost 50. Paul is nearing 60. So they decide to move back to the States and settle in Cambridge. And it's really sweet. Or Cambridge, Mass. So it's so sweet. Paul built counters that were higher to accommodate Julia's height. She's so tall. She's so tall. And he installed hooks to hang every cooking gadget Aww. that she might need. I love Paul. He's oh he's darling. He even, you know, made sure she had like a professional oven. He was he was like he's retired now. So he's just there he really the time to, to be to help, help her. Julia. And I just I love that part of in the reading about Paul and Julia's marriage and they're just the support of one another. Super endearing. But the cookbook got rave reviews. The New York Times called it a masterpiece. I have to throw out, this is really an interesting thing to note, that there was concern about the book's success because it's 1960s. The women, now i got to put us in this perspective, women are just entering the workforce. I mean, it's, you know. And so they're relying on the convenience of TV dinners and canned food. Uh, but that yeah. was popular then, you know. Spam. So American. Spam and jello modes were popular. At the time, Americans... I don't know that I've had Spam. Well, I've had it once or twice. It's kind of... It's huge in Hawaii. Huge in Hawaii. But at the time, this was popular, I mean, for people to eat in the 1960s. And Americans, we didn't... They did not eat, like, with so much style and imagination as we do today, you know? So home-cooked meals were kind of viewed old-fashioned. That's sad to me. But that's just... Transfer. It's just no, it's just it's, given the time, yeah. you know, given the time. So, on the co- contrary, Julia's recipes were made from fresh ingredients, and I love. I have to point this out that it talk about sustainability before the popularity of today. I mean, I she just was way she way ahead of, ahead of her time, and I love this while promoting her cookbook at a local TV station there in Boston, Mass. Um, she brought a hot plate with her to demonstrate <laughs> how to make an omelet. I guess at the time, omelet pans were not something people could go get or oh. garlic press. Like, we think that's just, yeah. you go to, they didn't have that. So, it's kind of a novel thing. Now, you can get those at Target. Anywhere, yeah. yeah. 
But Julie was so engaging, talking to people in the audience. She was cracking eggs, flipping, you know, cracking and flipping the eggs. She made such an impression on the audience. Letters poured in. Wanting, she didn't have to sit there and dig the Oh, the, no. She was doing it and, out and like chatting. I yeah. I mean, she, she people wanted more of her. And I love it. So the Boston TV station took a chance, and she hosted a half-hour weekly show called The French Chef. And after two years, the show aired nationwide. It ended up being like 200 episodes over a 10-year wow. span. The show was live, which was tricky to produce because yeah. if she made a mistake, she kept on going. And back then, they didn't have that retake capability mm-hmm. or a te- she had no teleprompter. She wrote out little notes. And so it didn't look perfect, which you, I love. No, and she life would, is not perfect. She would ad lib. And, <laughs> and so, like, she'd flip, like, a potato pancake with such gusto and so much enthusiasm. Sometimes I fell on the table and she would just say, you can always pick it up you're, if you're alone in the kitchen. Who's going to see? Much I just love True. that. Yeah. And sometimes she'd sing. And I love her motto, if I can do it, you can do it. I was curious because I, I, I wanted I watched a YouTube video where she made a Bush de Noel. And this is kind of dear to my heart because growing up, my sister took French and she made this in high school, but we call it the Bucky de Noel kind of and oh, she, she made it with mint ice cream and chocolate like a chocolate jelly roll. And then my mom made one for me when I was in high school. But anyways, it was kind of something I wanted to look up. And of course, Julia Child does, does make one. And for those who don't know, yeah, it's a jelly roll style Christmas cake or called a Yule Log covered in chocolate frosting for the bark and then topped with like these meringue mushrooms and powdered sugar for snow. It sounds super complicated, but when I watch this YouTube video, she is so instructive. It's it just, she makes it look so easy. And I love when I, she... I, I disagree with you. With yeah. Making it look easy. <laughs> she, she, when she, in the video, I mean, she's just so instructive. And yeah, no, but that's just her gift. It's her gift to people. Yeah, she makes it look easy. She does. It's I, not. I, I it's, saw I, this yeah. TikTok video on uh, some dance thing that I was trying to do with my kids. Yeah. And I showed them at the beach. I'm like, oh. <laughs> it looked easy on the TikTok video. You go to do it. Not so easy. I have a feeling if I made... Made this yeah. long thing. No, not so easy. Right. But she was gifted. She, she was, was so talented. gifted. And it was so cute when she's making the, she's frosting the bark on there. She kept saying, <laughs> it, it makes it look more barky. And it's just the way she says that. It's yeah. so cute. Her her unassuming nature and funny quips, sometimes like a tool of bowl didn't work. And she would just kind of toss it aside. There's obviously this comedic humor to her TV presence. After all, Dan Aykroyd portrayed her on <laughs> SNL for years. Oh my gosh, I gotta watch And, that. you know, I just, I just love that. She continued uh, writing. She had a regular food column. In 1970, she and uh, Simca published their second volume of Mastering the Art of French Cooking. One thing I thought was really cool, she always made time for her fans. Like, she'd be to book signings, young chefs, she would give them advice. She even received phone calls at home. <laughs> with recipe dilemmas and I guess folks dilemmas. I guess even folks called her on Thanksgiving in a panic and she oh would talk gosh. to them which I think is so oh, awesome I love that. but Julia's passion for the culinary world and desire to inspire others led to her she co-founded the American Institute of Wine and Food in 1981 which I think is really cool she really wanted others to enjoy enjoy that but then sadly Years later, in 1994, her husband, Paul, passed away after a series of strokes. And then in 1996, at, 80, 19, at 84, 
She starred in a new show, Baking with Julia. So she's 84. She's lost Paul. I mean, I just think, wow, this lady keeps going. going. Yeah. I mean, I call her the Energizer Bunny because she also does Julia and Jacques cooking at home with her uh, friend Jacques Obviously Pepin. Obviously just a passion. I just mean, a true had a passion, passion for, drive for, her, for her food. Yeah. Then finally slowing down a bit, Julia moved to a retirement home in 2001 she donated her house to Smith College and the kitchen to the Smithsonian uh, National Museum of American History. Have you been to, to D.C.? I, no. Well, I've, I've been to the Smithsonian, but I've not, I did not see that exhibit. I mean, it was pre-kids, but I, want, I would love to see that. Yeah, me too. Me too. I mean, let's I think go, that would be let's... really cool. And then Julia passed away on August 13, 2004 at 91 from kidney failure, which is, I mean, she lived a really full life, yeah. but... I just loved reading about this fearless, delightful, yet trailblazing <laughs> woman. I mean, she is so interesting to learn about her position with the OSS in World War II. And she most definitely changed the view on Ameri- on French cooking through a step-by-step instructional yeah, so cookbook. so more people could do it. Yeah. And she made cooking, in general, just more approachable. It's pretty amazing that her career didn't take off till she was in her 50s. Wow. And boy, did it. I didn't realize that. And I love that, you know, using fresh ingredients at a time that wasn't popular, demonstrating recipes on TV. I mean, her show was a precursor for Food Network. I mean, she truly was a woman ahead of her time. And I love that she didn't, might have been a little taller. She, you know, might have talked different than other people did. She didn't look like other people did. She was comfortable in her own skin. Right. And passionate. Yeah. So let's end with Bon Appetit. I enjoy cooking with wine. Sometimes I even put it in food. Julia Child. <laughs> I guess I'm on a roll with the crochet. We chatted about some <laughs> foster a crochet. I know. Lucy crochets every night. I love She's that. making a scarf for her friend for Christmas. So I just, Aww, I love it. in a request. So yeah, we talked about her in episode 55. <laughs> and then in episode Tell 60, we talked it's- about... The Portland, Oregon woman Judy Schweitzer yes, leaving cro- crocheting yes. scarves for the you know for the homeless. Um, so I'm going to say no shame, no shame. Crocheting saga continues. <laughs> this is more of an environmental, yeah, and again Even a service spend. I love yes. this, and you're going to love it because it's some seniors. So <laughs> I just I fell in love with this group of women from Winter Valley Senior Center in Boston, Mass. It's so cute. These ladies gather. They snack on goodies, and they're chatting, and they're making sleeping mats for the homeless out of recycled plastic bags. Oh, win, win, I win. just love this. All sorts of a, a dozen of these ladies they meet weekly, um, and they've been doing it for more than a year. And they lovingly create these six-foot-long sleeping mats that are water-resistant. Oh, my gosh. They deliver them to the Pine Street Inn, a service center in Boston for the homeless, What's really remarkable about this is that these are super, they're su- super helpful because they help keep, keep, keep homeless off the concrete. So it's right. like preventing so like frostbite. Yeah. yeah. And the fun part, these leaves are part of a bigger group. So back in 2016, a, a church group in, in Tennessee has just kind of grown mm-hmm. and it's like on Facebook, it's all the way from California to Iowa to Canada. But I guess Judy O'Brien, the the woman from uh, Winter Valley Senior Center, heard about it on Facebook. And now they call her the boss lady. (laughs) 
And she didn't know how to crochet when she first learned about this group. And it's super sad to note uh, that more than half a million of the people in the U.S. are homeless. And so these mat-making groups are making a difference. Um, Boston's homeless population is less than 1%. So it's far it's far less than other places in the U.S. But what's really neat about these water-resistant mats, it's dual purpose, giving seniors a purpose. Yeah. You know, because we... Volunteering. Volunteering. And feeling good. And-, and, and helping the homeless. Each mat is made of 120 rows. So that's a lot of rows. And it's made from five to 600 bags. So it, that's... They're time consuming. What do you mean bags? Bags. Plastic bags. Oh. They're okay. cut in strips. Oh, and so it's super labor intensive. They they're folded, they're cut in the mm-hmm. and then looped into the to create this kind of plastic yarn. Um and they also it's really sweet. They put these little labels on there against cautioning against placing them near heating vents because mm-hmm. that would melt right, would or melt start a fire. But there's also again, there's a ripple effect in this story too, <laughs> that one of the uh, Matt making crocheters uh, Ms. Cullen says that she'll go to church and people know that she makes these she'll come back and the back of her car is just filled with plastic bags which is super sweet and final once note once again I'm going to make me like teary the final note I love this what Judy O'Brien boss lady from the Winter Valley Senior Center in uh, Boston Mass she says I will stop crocheting with plastic bags when plastic bags are banned I just love her moxie that she's yeah. going to keep using this material and until keep, it's, until it's until gone. They, yeah. And I, I kind of like this, the way she says that. Yeah. And for someone in that, for her Where age, did you find this, this story? Today's show? No, I no. didn't. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love it. I, I was, was so... I don't know what it was. Now I was I looking. Learn, we looking. can do this on the yeah. West Coast. Yeah. I know they're doing it. We, yeah, love we should it. look. I, like I should it. look love on the Facebook yeah. and see if You're we totally can find sure. it. Love that. The fun part when we get to find out more about each other. <laughs> so, favorite or least favorite thing about Christmas? I'd say my least favorite is the commercialism. Yeah, I do. I love how people help out others, but the commercialism is just too much. Yeah, I hear you. We got to fight against that. Yeah, there we go. Uh, favorite or least favorite holiday treat? I'm with you, fudge. Oh, no, yeah. Yeah, fudge is definitely That's my good. favorite holiday treat. I love treat. that. Uh, biggest holiday cooking, baking, or <laughs> fail? <laughs> um, I tried to make a cheesecake once. That did not work I, out. I think cheesecake's hard. It is. Yeah. But people say how easy they are. Well, They're not. They're not. I was all excited, and I did do a, uh, for like a Halloween holiday get together um like a I carved out these apples to have a jello shot slash oh. pudding thing wow. in the middle. That's well fun. yeah it's <laughs> fun except for and it was beautiful on the blog that I copied it from but then when I went to do it it didn't set. Oh. So I carved out all of these apples. I took them to the party and it was like it, it was a drink. It wasn't it didn't ever set. Oh, so bummer. It, mm, yeah. Sounds fun though. It, it tasted sounds, delicious. I bet it was. It, it it was yeah, it was a huge fail. Hmm. Strangest or worst present you ever received? <laughs> so when I was like fifteen or sixteen, my grandpa gave me silk underwear <laughs> for Christmas. My grandpa had retired that year, so 
he did all the shopping yeah. for my grandparents. And it's just... It's kind of funny. It's... Off. Yeah. My sister, who is four years younger than I am, so what, she would have been 11 or 12, she got a Barbie bus <laughs> that year. Ne- neither one of us were into Barbies. Yeah. And that definitely... But yeah. So oh, anyway, my funny. grandma tried really yeah. hard, but that's probably... You don't want to get panties from... No. Your grandpa. That would be kind of weird. Yeah. So that was sad. Oh. Do you send out Christmas cards? Is that. I do New Year's. Okay. I love that. Because Christmas is just so busy. Yeah. So we do Happy New Year. And I I I think that's kind of fun. I think it's fun to get them later. Yeah. I think so too. And it, it matches my whole. The holidays are just so busy, so right. yeah, we do perfect. we do Happy New Year. Fun. Find something you're passionate about and keep tremendously interested in it, Julia Child. Amy and I are so excited for 2022, yes. bringing new, inspiring stories. Hopefully, people will send us some. That'd be awesome. Because we'd love to hear stories from around the world. We can't wait for 2022. Happy New Year! (laughs) Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com or leave a comment on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories, follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week.